Hello and welcome to the Federal Low-Code Trailblazers podcast. This is uh, season two, episode four, part of the ATARC Federal IT newscast. Uh, This episode will focus on building a low-code culture. My name is Bill Bunce. I am an enterprise account executive with Pegasystems uh, and the industry chair for ATARC's uh, low-code working group, which is a subset of ATARC's DevOps technology pillar. A low-code platform provides a factory approach used to collaborate, innovate, and deliver critical applications from one inclusive environment using a graphical user interface instead of traditional hand-coded computer programming. Our goal with this podcast is simply to meet with government and industry leaders who are leveraging low-code on real projects uh, and better understand the challenges they're overcoming and the benefits they're realizing from low-code. My guest this month is John Smith, Consulting Solution Executive with Pegasystems. John, welcome. Thank you. Hey, John, um, can I ask you just, you know, we'll kick things off here by having you introduce yourself and share your relationship with LowCode. Sure. Um, So as Bill said, my name is John Smith, and I'm a Consulting Solutions Executive with Pegasystems. So part of my role is to support our clients' implementation and adoption of, of PEGA's low-code uh, case management platform. So this includes um, you know, scoping and sizing engagements, but it also includes uh, staffing and, and training of project teams and, and kind of educating our, our partners and our clients on, on what an implementation uh, and delivery team looks like in a low-code environment. Um, and, and pretty much, you know, whatever else is necessary to prepare them for, for what is usually their, their first introduction to the world of low code. Uh, so I've been with PEGA for about eight years. Um, and, and prior to PEGA, I was with uh, OpenText and, and Metastorm, uh, also supporting adoption and implementation of their low code platforms. And, and back then, it wasn't even called low code. So it's, uh, it's, it's, been, a, it's been, a, been a journey, I guess. <laughs> gotcha. I appreciate it. Um, and, and that's great background. Um, you know, if we try and define what is corporate culture, you know, generally it refers to the beliefs and the behaviors that determine how a company's employees and manage in, in management interact. Um, you know, a corporate culture certainly develops organically over time. You can't, you know, mandate a culture. Um, you know, and it, and it evolves from traits of the employees who work at that company. So I guess my first question, if we're talking about building a low-code culture, what, what should a low-code culture look like? Sure. So yeah, to me, a low-code culture starts with empowering employees when it comes to making improvements to the business. You know, every single person in the organization should feel encouraged to to look for ways to improve how business gets done. And good ideas should always be supported and rewarded by the organization. There's also a strong tie to the agile design and delivery principles here. Um, you know, a lot of times, uh, a lot of times things don't change in an organization because, because problems look too big and, and too intertwined with other problems to be fixed without massive wide scale changes. But the fundamental concept of Agile is that you can break big problems down into smaller components and keep breaking those components down into either small, even smaller components until you have something tangible that, that represents meaningful improvement and that you can deliver in a very short period of time. It's kind of you know, one of the fundamental tenets of, of Agile delivery. Sure. And in a low-code culture, this is happening all the time. You know, incremental improvements are, are always good for the organization as long as they're driving towards the organization's you know, underlying, goal, uh, underlying goals and objectives. Gotcha. 
<clears throat> there's a, a pretty famous um, quote from Peter Drucker that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So <clears throat> this implies that you know, culture of an organi organization determines their success, regardless of how effective their strategy may be. Um, if you walk into, or let's say you inherit a traditional software development culture, how do you evolve that organization into the low-code culture that you referenced? Sure. Well, first of all, I completely agree with that quote uh, from Mr. Drucker. You know, strategy is simply how you plan to achieve your goals, but that strategy can easily get pushed to the side if you're presented with a challenge that seems uh, insurmountable with, with a given approach. As the old adage goes, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, <laughs> but, but culture represents who you are uh, and you are who you are, regardless of the hurdles and the challenges that you face. And, and that kind of, you know, that, that's kind of where, where, where the culture, you know, where we get to with culture, I guess, is, or, or why, why culture is so important. Uh, so in terms of evolving a company into a low-code culture, I think this starts, this starts by getting buy-in at the very, very highest levels of the organization and making sure that those leaders are communicating their support for this shift uh, early and often to everybody in the organization. If leadership isn't 100% behind the move to low-code, it's guaranteed to fail. Uh, you know, we've seen this over and over again for a very long period of time. Um, uh, you know, and then everything has to flow down from that. The company needs to select a technology that supports a low-code way of life. Business processes and practices need to change to allow for, uh, for a more involved and more dynamic workforce. Uh, and that, that workforce will need training and encouragement and, and, and proper rewards as they transition as well. It's not an overnight process, um, but it's one that any organization is, uh, can make as long as they, they really commit to it. Yeah, I can't agree with you more that um, in, you know, I also have seen it many, many times that <clears throat> if you don't have management on board, um, you're probably doomed for, to fail. Um, I also think, you know, we can probably both agree that one of the key obstacles um, to digital transformation is the lack of engineers. Uh, so in that regard, low code, you know, changes things a little bit. <clears throat> because it brings into play, you know, folks who traditionally were not involved in the software development process. <clears throat> you know, according to some of the analysts, 80% of programming tasks or workloads, you know, will be delivered without coding by 2024, which is not that far away. How important uh, is it, do you think, um, to build your low-code team from people operating in those roles today, um, essentially turning people doing the processes today into your champions? Well, honestly, Bill, I think it's everything. I think it's, it's, it's just the most important thing. You know, those are the people who really understand how business gets done, how, how business operates. Again, how it gets done at the, at the very lowest levels of the organization. So they're frequently the best source for ideas and improvements that can ultimately save a, save a business millions of dollars or, or retain clients or expand into new areas of business. Uh, it's really important to show those people that their roles are, aren't just going to be automated away. Uh, that's a constant concern when you're talking about low code and automation. People are always worried about having their job be automated away and they'll find themselves working themselves out of a job. Um, so it's really important to just reassure them and that they're, there's they're, a that they're valued, uh, b that automation does not mean that they're going to lose their jobs. It's going to mean that they can spend more time focusing their their day on on more important and more valuable and, and more interesting things. 
uh, and again, that, that they're- which, which sometimes could just be more time at home with the family. <laughs> absolutely, you know, absolutely. Uh, getting rid of some of the 10 and 12 hour days that, that, that people, you know, are frequently still working. Um, and, and then it's important to show them that their ideas and suggestions are going to be, be heard and, and rewarded by the organization. Right, and, and you know, can be implemented quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, so adoption of new technology, you know, has always played a big role in many business success. You know, when business leaders um, leave their comfort zone to embrace new ways of doing business, How, you know, and, and you talked about getting management on board, but, but why do you think low code is often considered still a new technology when, you know, you and I have been in this low code space for, you know, 20 plus years? That's a, that's a really good question, Bill. Um, you know, I, I remember asking myself uh, or, or, you know, myself and coworkers asking each other the same question 20 years ago <laughs> about business process management and business rules management platforms, which, which by the way, still have not been fully embraced and adopted across government. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of reasons behind this. And, and to name just a few, um, you know, low-code technology has been around for a long time, but most of that time, low-code has just been a, a buzzword. You know, it hasn't really had a lot of meaning or, or definition behind it or, or those meanings. It, it could mean different things to different people. Um, I think it's just fairly recently that low code platforms are getting getting to a point of maturity where they can really start to deliver on the on the low code promises that they've been making for a, you know, for a long period of time. Uh, you know, second, I, I think government is inherently resistant to change. Uh, leadership is is unwilling or, or they believe they're unable. To, to do something that's fundamentally new to them or to the organization. And, and, and also end users are, are generally happy with the status quo. Status quo. And, and we see end users pushing back on change fairly often. Uh, and then finally, I, I think, I honestly think government's contracting practices get in the way of this sometimes as well. You know, the government is still awarding these big monolithic contracts, the same huge monolithic contracts that they've, they've always been awarding. They're not demanding change from the system administrator community. Uh, and, and I think that's that's a big driver here as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's hard. I mean, we could try and hold the right people accountable, but, you know, uh, so, so many challenges in that space. Budget is a big challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, they get their budget at least the last five or so years with continuing resolution, you don't get your budget till the year's half over and then you've got half a year to spend all your budget. So in that amount of time, you know, how do we plan for new technology? And we just got to figure out how to do it. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's- but, but the way we do the contracts need to change and the, and the, the way those contracts look needs yeah. to change. And, um, you know, I think that that culture needs to be established. And we talked about that earlier, how, business processes and business practices need to change from top to bottom for this to really work. Yeah. And, and that's not happening. You know, a lot of things are just still being done the way they've always been done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I see agile being adopted, uh, but not the wide scale, you know, changes that, that you're talking about. Um, it, but they're adopting agile as well as they can, given the constraints that are, that are, you know, put on them by the other, by the organization or by other business practices or, or processes or policies in the organization. It's always, yeah, yeah, yeah doing, doing the best you can. Uh, I mean, we've been saying this a long time. You, you be as agile as you can be. You know, we, we advocate <laughs> that to our clients all the time. And, and yeah. you know, at PEGA, we take a scrum approach to everything that we do. 
but we know that most of our clients can't do out of the box scrum, what real, what true scrum looks like. So again, uh, I, I can't tell you how many clients we've encouraged, just be as agile as you can be. And, right. and then if you can make improvements to that over time, great. But the best you can know, any move towards agile is a good move. Right. You know, if we look at, you know, the arc of technology adoption, you know, obviously uh, Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, is was all about, you know, where the adoption of new technology. And he lays out, um, you know, innovators, early adopters, the majority, and then the laggards, <laughs> finally the laggards. Mm -hmm. You know, where do we see government uh, in low-code adoption today? Or where do you see? Sure. So, so I have not read that book, but I did, you know, look it up a little bit and just try to educate myself a little bit. And my understanding is, is that Mr. Moore kind of split the, the majority phase into an early majority and a late majority. Right. Um, and, and to me, you know, government by and large is in that kind of early majority phase uh, on that life cycle. It's pretty rare, I think, to see true innovators or early adopters in government. Uh, it's not that you never see it, but I, I just think it's fairly rare. And there, aren't, there aren't, just aren't, maybe there aren't enough people willing and able to take the risks ne necessary to be those, you know, innovators or early adopters. Um, but at this point, I do think of technology as mature enough and, and proven enough that we're, we're starting to see agencies taking a real look at how they can benefit from low-code technology. And we're seeing some who are doing so with, with, with a lot of success. Um, Agreed. But it's not all, you know, it's not really widespread. I'm not sure it's gained critical mass. There's still a lot of leadership who don't understand it well enough, uh, who don't believe in the technology, uh, don't believe the technology is established enough to really make a commitment. So like I said, I don't think we've gotten to that point of critical mass where, where the late majority folks are starting to jump into the field. Um, so yeah, I would kind of put, put government in that early majority phase. Yeah, I know that you and I often talk about you know, um, mission critical applications like the census or IRS, social security, uh, NBIS and so on, where, um, you know, there were management that, you know, um, saw the value of speed uh, and made the commitment, um, you know, for those mission critical. Now, often those were full-blown RFPs, which took multiple years uh, and, you know, um, I think uh, the census for one did a great job post award documenting why they made the selection. And, you know, hopefully tools like that will flow down uh, and we'll see others uh, begin to uh, begin to adopt tools like low code. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the client, I mean, you've kind of mentioned that there, the clients that I've seen be the most successful, and you talk about census, you talk about NBIS, you talk about um, or uh, it makes me think about New Jersey courts, for example, on the state side. Yeah, you know, they, they've been very successful with the low code, you know, uh, approach. They've been very successful with an agile approach, and and in pretty much every one of those cases or every one of those projects, you've got people at the top who just are saying, "This is the way we're going to do this." And yeah, there was there the, was more than is, likely one person, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> who it's, it's, said, it's, "I'm gonna I'm gonna put my job on the line." Yeah, and, and, and it gonna... goes back to that commitment. You know, you got to have that commitment yeah. of leadership just to say, this is what we're going to do. So everybody better get on board. Um, and it can be painful in the <laughs> beginning to make a radical shift like that. But they've, you know, they reap major rewards from that down the road. 
Yeah, and you know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be the CIO. It doesn't have to be the chief data officer. It doesn't need to be somebody with a C in front of their title. Um, you know, I've seen many captains and and majors and colonels have a a big impact on you know a program's um, you know way forward. Uh, so absolutely, yeah, sure. Well, you know, transitioning to a low code culture, you know, isn't going to be smooth unless the organization, you know, is ready to take that step. So, you know, we've been talking about, you know, um, that you need a champion and so on, but adopting a new platform, you know, will mean that you have to train your staff uh, on how it works. You need, you know, um, possibly restructuring because, you know, traditional software, you know, if you're not doing agile today, you know, if you're implementing low code, you want to do agile at the same time, as, as you mentioned, you know, what else or, or can you talk about, you know, what are the steps to, you know, building a successful program and in doing so, you know, kind of changing the culture? Yeah, and so, so training on the platform for sure, you know, select a platform and then get the training on the platform for the, for the whole team and, and across all different roles. It's not just the developers, it's not just business users, but it's also product owners and it's project managers and, and business analysts and business architects. Everybody needs to understand the technology to some degree um, and, and everybody needs to be speaking the same language. Um, you know, so, so tra absolutely training on the platform is, is very important. Um, I talked earlier about, you know, that close tie with agile delivery. So I think in addition to platform training, you know, I can't recommend enough that that agile needs to be a part of this for, for every single client that's doing a low code journey. And, and I think that the, the teams need, need training uh, in, in an agile delivery approach as well. So, so not just platform, but also that agile methodology. Um, there should be a lot of emphasis on uh, in support for, for collaboration between the different areas of the business, um, especially between business in IT, but, but really across the business. That, that collaboration, you know, it allows for a sharing of ideas and, uh, and, and changes around the organization and helps ensure that improvements in one area don't have negative improvements in other areas of the business. And, and again, kind of make sure that everybody understands what everybody is doing. Um, so, uh, you know, Again, having support for and encouragement for collaboration across the business, I think, is, is always really, really important. Um, and then looking forward, you know, you may you may actually consider changes to your your hiring processes and, and your compensation um, you know, packages, how you compensate your employees. You know, we want to bring in people who are willing and able to, to, to think broadly about how they can improve the business using a low code platform. And we want to reward them fairly for doing so. And of course, I don't mean firing your workforce and, and starting with a whole new one, but but over time, just change kind of the model of, of the people that you're looking for um, sure. to focus on more of that 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 process improvement mindset, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, when we say less code, that does not mean no governance. <laughs> Um, talk to me about implementing um, a DevSecOps culture, or a DevOps culture in parallel with a low code culture. Yeah, what you said is definitely true. Um, you know, in fact, less code often translates to a need for more governance rather than, rather than less governance. You know, you end up having a lot more cooks in the kitchen, if you will, uh, and, and things can be moving a whole lot faster. So, so there really needs to be a, a strong and, and well-defined governance structure around things. 
So I think DevSecOps is a natural fit with, with a low-code culture. Uh, it's probably even a necessary fit. Um, you know, incorporation of DevSecOps should be should be part of the shift to low code. By implementing the two together, it, it all be, it becomes you know one big holistic shift uh, that the organization is making at one time. And I really think that's easier to plan and adopt than trying to do them separately, uh, or, or or maybe bring DevSecOps in after the platform has been established. I, I think it's important to do it at the same time because they are intertwined. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, adding low code um, also needs time to adjust, you know, and meld with your staff um, before it is, you know, accepted as a natural part of the workplace. Um, how long does it typically take to, to build a low code culture? Is it one project? Is it, you know, multiple projects? Yeah, there's there's a lot of factors in play that can influence this. You know, it's uh, I, I never like to answer a question with it depends, but uh, but sometimes <laughs> often it, does, it depends. You know, um, so so things like you know from from commitment of, of the leadership that we talked about several times already, uh, to the willingness of staff to adopt the changes. Sometimes you get staff that just doesn't want to do it, um, yeah. and, and and you put a few key people in places and, and who decide they don't want to adopt something, and it can it can derail or at least slow down just about anything. Um, so that the quality and, and capability of, of the platform or platforms that you choose plays into that. Um, and then the culture that's in place prior to the shift, uh, I think can really play a big impact as well. You know, if you've, for example, I guess if, if you've already brought Agile in uh, and, and have made Agile an inherent part of, the, part of the culture of your organization already, which some have, then it might be a much easier shift to bring low code into that um, than, than for companies who have never even started down an agile journey either. Um, so, so again, there's a lot of factors at play. For most organizations, I suggest this is probably a journey of, of maybe one to two years, um, but it can sure. certainly be, be less than that for some organizations and, and it could be more for others. You know, that said, most of what's needed to do this is already present in the organization. And remember that one of the core ideas of low code is to put responsibility for business improvement into the hands of the people who know the business best. And, and those people are all already there. So you just need to add in a tool or a platform that kind of facil facilitates that and then encourage and enable and empower those people to, to use that platform and adopt that platform. And, and none of this happens overnight, of course, we're talking about the time. So so it's all about incremental improvements and, and making slow but steady progress forward. Yeah, gotcha. Um, you know, on our, I don't know if you listened to our podcast, but on our last podcast, we uh, discussed manufacturing low-code talent, you know, um, and, including, you know, hybrid teams and melding business users together with citizen developers and traditional developers to build out the team. How important do you think diversity is in building your low-code culture? Well, I think it's enormously important. You know, we talked already about, um, about collaboration required between business and, and, and IT and, and leadership and other stakeholders throughout the organization. You know, bringing in a, a true low-code culture, I think, requires tight collaboration across the entire organization. So, uh, that means that these teams, you know, the teams become much larger and have a wider type of resource or type of person in it or in them. Um, so they do become very, very diverse teams. Um, 
you know, low code does not mean the elimination of all code. You know, building a, a complex enterprise class scalable application is always going to require some degree of coding. So, the, you know, the key to getting the most out of your low code platform is to have business users and citizen developers who are working together in concert with the traditional developers. You know, let the citizen developers build the business parts, such as the user interface and the business processes and the business rules. Uh, and, and then let the traditional developers step in when it comes time to, to building out the complex parts, like you know the, the data sources and, and the, the, the uh, integration points to, to outside systems and that sort of thing. Um, and while you're at it, you know, take advantage of the secure and, and scalable cloud infrastructure so you can offload a lot of that effort and, and focus on your business. But again, having those, those business users and, and IT users working together um, in these diverse teams is, is what's really creating a lot of value and, and, and making a low-code uh, environment, low-code platform, low-code culture effective for our clients. Well, this has been great, John. I really want to thank you for you know, taking your time to, to meet with us here today um, for your insight. I think it's been very helpful. Uh, until next month, when we have another conversation with a government trailblazer on the use of low-code in government, my name is Bill Bunce. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill.